your praise will ever be on my lips. In the good days and in the bad days, through sunshine and in rain, when I feel it and when I don't, your praise will ever be on my lips. Those words are very easy to say in times of peace when everything is going well. But right now, if you look down through the state of Florida and parts of South Carolina and North Carolina, you may find that the believers there are having a difficult time this morning singing those words and meaning them from their heart. Your praise will ever be on my lips. I want to take a moment this morning to pray uh, for the people in Southeast Florida. I think it is important and necessary, especially when we have so many churches there that we bring them up before God and that our hearts move toward them. And pray that God will do a mighty work in their midst. So pray with me. Our Father and our God, we lift up the people of Florida before you this morning. South Carolina and North Carolina, Fort Myers and Naples and Sanibel and Cape Corral, Greensboro, North Carolina. All those towns and villages in between who have been touched and hurt in one way or another by this horrific storm that has touched their lives. Father God, we cannot comprehend such un unimaginable devastation, the trauma they must be experiencing. But our hearts and our minds are with them this morning and we're praying for them and we pray that you, by your own Holy Spirit, would encourage them and strengthen those who are feeling emotionally feeble and weak that your Holy Spirit would move among them and empower them and give them hope and remind them of the future that they have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida on Wednesday afternoon as a powerful Category 4 hurricane with winds around 150 miles per hour. The total damage estimates cannot be fully known right now, but so far we know that at least 66 people were killed in Florida alone. And many are becoming more and more certain that many will never be found, swept out into the ocean forever, unimaginable. Homes have been swallowed by the rushing waters and roadways and bridges have been obliterated. Power lines are ripped down. And parts of Georgetown, South Carolina look like an ocean today. Nearly 900,000 customers in Florida are still without power and more than 30,000 in North Carolina. The reports are that many communities are unrecognizable due to the devastation. In short, our fellow citizens on the southeast coast have been devastated. Countless families are in 
total shock right now. And the freshness of their losses will be felt by many for decades to come. I reached out to some Alliance pastors down in Florida, in Naples and Fort Myers. We have many churches down there with no responses. So I reached out to our district superintendent to see if they were getting any word from Florida and the vice president of the Alliance has been trying to make contact but no one has called him back. They're devastated. Churches in the midst of rubble, homes and families shaken. No doubt many are in complete disbelief. Shock, trauma. And Ezekiel would fit so perfectly right now down on the coastlines of Florida. Ezekiel would fit right in. Because in his day, the hurricane called Babylon swept through the Middle East and devastated their communities laid waste to their temple, destroyed their families, sent the great men and women of Israel into exile on the coastlines of Babylon, and as we learn from chapter one of Ezekiel, he is traumatized in that same sort of disbelief. As he walks along the river Chibar, no doubt licking his wounds and asking a thousand questions. Why? How? Job could relate to their situation. As he concludes that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even so, blessed be the name of the Lord. Ezekiel may not have come to that conclusion just yet. As he's trying to work through and process all that he's seen, all that has happened, the bodies and the fire, the devastation of his homeland. And as he walks along this river Chibar, Ezekiel is about to be called into his assignment, his lifetime appointment. And he says that as he was looking, behold, a cloud. This cloud was a bright cloud with thunder and lightning flashing from within. And he says that within the cloud, he saw something that appeared to be metal. And from that metal, he began to decipher or to discern these heavenly beings. And as you heard today and as you've read on your own, the, the, these, the, these creatures are unfamiliar. We've never seen anything like them, yet somehow they were relatable. Each one has a human face. Each one has something in common with those to whom they have been sent to minister. They are relatable. We also learn that they are aware 
They have four faces. They see everything that's going on around them. Four faces looking in every direction. They are aware. They have four sets of wings, symbolizing their ability to mobilize at a moment's notice in any direction, always ready, always prepared. Four sets of wings. We also learned they have limitations. The, the, these angelic beings that he saw, they have limitations. They have human hands. They weren't insecure about their limitations. They have human hands. These great big old angels have the hands of men. They have, even the angels have limitations. And these are the lessons that we learned from last week about the posture of the minister. That the minister recognizes his own limitations. That the minister is aware of what's going on in the world around him. That the minister is able and willing to mobilize at a moment's notice. I was, I was looking at the news and just, just engrossed in the news about Florida. And I was thinking about Joe Straw. And I do this from time to time. I started imagining what I would do if I had the resources. I said, well, Joe, you know, Joe might be willing and interested to go down to Florida for a 30 days and do some ministry. I don't know if it's true or not, Joe. I just thought about you. I thought, man, if, if I had the resources, I would send someone from the church, a delegation from the church down to Florida just to help out, just to, to, to tell people that you're not alone, that we're, we're standing with you. Relatable, able to understand and to feel the hurts and the pains and the needs of those who are around us. Aware, relatable, willing and able to mobilize at a moment's notice, but also cognizant of our own limitations. That is the minister. And today, we're going to continue to learn from these great ministers that Ezekiel was introduced to on that day. He continues to give his account of the appearance of these four ministering spirits in verse 8. And the next feature that Ezekiel recognizes is the fact that these ministers were united. He says, as for the face and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their wings touched one another. They were united, meaning that they stood together that they supported one another in the work that they were assigned to do. And, and as you paint this picture in your mind, you have to remember that each one of these angelic beings has four wings. Imagine how much coordination this must have taken for them to synchronize to such a degree that this wing is touching that wing and this wing. How, how, how synchronized must they have been as they moved around together, united, just one? Huh. You know, when you picture these kinds of things, you often get a snapshot in your head, like you see a, a photo of these four angels, oh, and, their, and their wings are touching. And, no, this is not a photo. These are four living creatures, he said. It takes an amount of coordination to keep your wings together like this. They're united. They're so together. Who is it? Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. They had been together so long that Michael Jordan would just go, go toward, toward the basket and just throw the ball behind him. He knew Scotty was right. He just knew it. Just 
when Scotty does a layup. They were so connected, so together, so united. Their wings were touching one another. That's how unified they were. And this is how unified ministers should be. I am reminded of Paul's beautiful depiction of unity within the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 where he says this, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul envisions here. Paul sees this vision of Jesus Christ for his church, for his ministers, as being fitted and held together with everyone supplying the needs of the, with our wings touching one another. Fitted, held together, each minister doing his part. And from this unity, Paul says, every member grows and the body is built up in love. Hmm. Now, I don't know much about the relationship between cherubim. I've never been invited to one of their parties. I don't know if cherubim or angels have different personalities. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if angels or cherubim have different personalities. I don't know. I don't know if they have different quirks and likes and dislikes. But I know human beings. I know us. And I know that it requires a good deal of intentionality, patience, and leaning in for us to be able to create such a wonderfully effective environment like the one Paul describes, like the one the cherubim are demonstrating before our eyes. Intentionality, patience, and leaning in. If these angels, if these cherubim are anything like human beings, I am sure that there are days when one or two of these angels don't feel like touching their wings with certain angels. If they're anything like us, I'm sure they have their days. Days where angel A doesn't want to be next to angel B. Angel A wants to be next to angel C, and angel C wants to be next to angel A, and we want to change the order of things. I'm sure they have their days. If they have personalities, anything like us, I am sure that it took a lot for them to work together in this way. <laughs> yeah, we see the angels coming down out of heaven. They look pristine to Ezekiel. They look pristine when I think of them in my own mind as they emerge from this fiery cloud. But Ezekiel and you and I, we don't know the backstory. <laughs> Ezekiel doesn't know just how challenging it may have been for Angel A to get to, 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 to stand beside Angel C, how to get them on the same page, how much work it took to coordinate them. We don't know. <laughs> you're thinking right now, Calvin, you're talking about angels. These are not human. These are angels. These are special beings. Of course, we assume that angels don't have uh, uh, fallings out among themselves like people do. Angels are different. But we don't know that to be the case. Do you know that to be the case? We don't know that to be the case. In fact, the clearest example that this is not the case 
is the fallen angel himself, Satan, whom Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. <laughs> Satan fell. And Satan fell because of pride. He fell because he didn't like the idea of standing together with other angels and touching their wings. He fell because he wanted to be untouchable, independent, self-sufficient. He stood as a poor representation of the ministers of Jesus Christ. And from this example, we can assume that angels apparently have some degree of self-will. They're able to make independent choices to some degree. Satan did. This doesn't cause me to look down on angels. This actually makes their heavenly dance together. This actually makes their beautiful coordination all the more wonderful in my view. That they of their own will are standing together wings to wings, voluntarily renouncing their individuality, sacrificing their autonomy in the service of the glory of their God. This speaks volumes of their dedication to the purposes of Christ. And it speaks volumes of our dedication to the cause of Jesus Christ when we are able to emulate these cherubim. To discard our need for individual expression and to allow ourselves, our vision, and our labors to coalesce into one singular movement that advances the cause of Jesus Christ around the world. It speaks well of us when we can do this. It took me a long time to write that paragraph right there. I think that's a beautifully stated paragraph. What about you? I think that's just beautifully stated. But I know that it's much easier said than done. And why is that? Why is it so difficult for us to stand wings to wings? Why is it so difficult for us to stand shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart? Why is that? We know from scripture what the devil's problem was. It was pride. Isaiah explains it best in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. He says this, how have you fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth you who defeated the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. That's what you said. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's what you said. Nevertheless, you've been brought down to Sheol, to the recesses of, we know what the devil's problem was. Pride, arrogance. Got him knocked down to size and even below his size. The devil wanted to be somebody. The enemy thought he had all the answers that God was going about this whole lordship thing all wrong. He was proud. And his pride led to his demotion. Is that our problem? Is that what we suffer from? Is that why we can't stand wings to wings? Pride? 
the arrogant suspicion that we have all the answers and we have no need of partnership, relationship, or participation? Is that our problem? Pride and a false sense of self-sufficiency? Could it be that we simply feel like we're better alone than in fellowship? Could that be our problem? I imagine that for some of us, this is precisely the problem. An inaccurate sense of self-sufficiency driven by an overestimation of our own true abilities. Sure, that's the problem for many of us. But these dark clouds soon pass away. These are the ones who are unable to hang on. These are the ones who are unable to find their place within the body when most of the body is standing together. They find themselves on the outside looking in, isolated, resenting the fact that the body can go on without them. Yeah. I think so. That has to account for some of the dissension we find in the body of Christ. But only some. There is another, believe it or not, much more innocent cause for the disunity that we often see within the church. Not every person who finds it difficult to stand together with others has nefarious motives, believe it or not. And these are the kinds of ministers I'm talking to today. And I'll say at the outset that I address you as a fellow minister. And I suffer from a very similar flaw myself. And I come to this conclusion I'm about to share with you. I come to this conclusion from my own life experience and my personal observation of many other ministers who are fresh thinkers, self-starters, innovators, we're movers and shakers. We all have a very similar problem. Fresh thinkers, self-starters, innovators, movers and shakers. As I describe this, you can look at my own life and your experiences with me and you can see this flaw for yourself. But I would advise you today, don't spend too much time looking at me, look at your own self. And you may find that you suffer from a very similar debilitation. These are the kinds of ministers, besides the ones who are just proud and arrogant, these are the kinds of ministers who have the greatest difficulty standing wings to wings with their fellow ministers. The fresh thinker is always reimagining the church. Always reimagining the church. The church is never good enough, and the fresh thinker has new ideas. The fresh thinker has little patience for those who honor tradition. That was yesterday, man. Fresh thinkers have a difficult time standing wings to wings with other ministers because they see the world so differently, so fresh, so new. They're easily fatigued by the tradition. We went through the book, I believe where Paul went up to Jerusalem to meet the apostles. And if you recall, Paul had a bad attitude about going up there to meet Peter and John and James. He really didn't like it. You can tell by the way he wrote. 
you see, Paul had spent 14 years by himself in Samaria in the school of the Holy Spirit alone. He wasn't standing wings to wings with anybody. He said that after he was converted, he went to Samaria. And in Samaria, with the biblical knowledge that he had, the Holy Spirit worked with him to reveal Jesus Christ to him in a personal, dynamic way. It was just he and Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit says, okay, congratulations, Paul, you've made it. Now I want you to go and meet Peter and James and John. For what? Peter and James and John, who? I'm not exaggerating, that's the way he said it. When I met those who were apostles or whatever they call themselves, he had an attitude about that. He was a fresh thinker. I don't need to meet James and John. James and John and Peter are still in Jerusalem. They're building their church right next door to the temple. They're still trying to recreate the Old Testament as far as I'm concerned. I am not interested in meeting Peter. I'm doing something new, something fresh. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you have to stand wings to wings. <laughs> Sorry, you have to stand wings to wings. But Lord, you have revealed more to me than you revealed to them. I know that the Gentiles have been accepted and adopted. They don't even understand that yet. Paul, you have to stand wings to wings. I don't have any mavericks in my kingdom. I just don't. You have to stand wings. They're inferior to me in so many ways. You just think that, Paul. Go and stand with Peter and James. And listen, listen. He went and stood with Peter and James. John, he didn't get much from that. He really didn't. They, he said, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. That was pretty much all. Well, thank you for the right hand of fellowship. I didn't need the right hand of fellowship. I was already doing ministry around the world. I didn't need your right hand of, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Because the cherubim stand wings to wings. <laughs> Unity, together. No big eyes and no little U's. No matter what you know, no matter what you think you know. <laughs> huh. Fresh thinkers have a hard time and have little patience for that kind of thing. What about the self-starter? The self-starter, the person who gets up on his own and goes and does the mission and the will of God without needing to be prompted by a pastor, without needing to be prompted by anyone else, but of his own will and volition, he is a self-starter. He gets up and he goes and does the work of the Lord. Yeah, sounds exciting, right? It is exciting. The, 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 the self-starter walks around all day with his sleeves rolled up has no desire, has no interest, and has no energy for cracking the whip to get the group moving. He doesn't care about that. If the group doesn't want to move, the self-starter goes it alone. The elders challenged me on that. Steve Lee challenged me on that specifically. As I was barreling ahead with my vision and my idea, and it didn't seem like anybody was listening, I said, you know what? I can do this like this, 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 and this. I can get it done, I can move on. And Steve said, what about the people? What about the people? I'm trying to get something done. What about the people, Gal? I mean, we have to, we have to, you gotta bring them with you. And I gotta turn around, okay, come on, Albie. Albie, you woke? You woke, Albie? Mm -hmm. You okay? You wanna wash your face first? 
movie. Come on, man. That's how I felt. That's how I felt. Come on, man. I'm a self-starter, man. Nobody has to tap me on the shoulder to get me moving. I move. I move when the Holy Spirit says move. I expect the same from you. Get up and move. Pastors can't do that. Pastors have to stand here with Alvy and say, Alvy, come on, Alvy. Come on. Ring, ring, ring. Come on, Alvy. You want to go now? You want to go? Okay. You wanna go? You, you're not moving, but I'm still sitting. Uh, never mind. You got to get a cane and everything. No, no. I'll go take care of it. I'll come back and bring the victory for you. God says, no. No, Mr. Self-Starter. You've got to stand wings to wings. Self-Starters. And the innovator. The innovator is so often willing to put everything on the line, and the innovator cannot relate to the people who are more risk averse in approaching life or approaching ministry. The innovator says, I see it, I believe it can work, I'm going for it. And when the risk averse say, what about this and what about this, the innovator just says, listen, if we lose it all, let's lose it all for Jesus, let's go. And he looks behind and nobody's coming. Let's go lose it all for Jesus. Either we're going to win or we're going to lose. Let's go. Come on. Uh, that sounds kind of risky. Yeah, I know it sounds risky, but we walk by faith, not by sight. All the other, other, other Bible verses. Let's go. So the innovator wants to put it in, in, into, into play all by, itself, all by himself. I was at Moody. Working in the radio station, they gave me this new department, new program. Moody never had it before. And they told me what the idea was and how much money they wanted to make. And they gave me a team. And this is one of my flaws. I have a team. And I'm reading books like a madman because that's what I do. When I get the vision, I start reading the books and I start putting together the plan. And when I get the plan together, I'm moving. That's all. Whether it succeeds or fails, I'm running. The team doesn't want to go. I got this idea. Let's go ahead and do it. Well, Calvin, let's consider. And let's consider. I got the idea, man. I see it. Just follow me. Let's just. You know what I did? I built a $2 million program by myself. I built a $2 million program by myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what it cost me, though? It cost me so many relationships. I had to run over so many people. I had to disregard so many warnings. I worked myself down. But I accomplished what I was trying to accomplish. That's a good thing, right? No. Because when you get to the top, when you get your way, when everything works out and you're standing on top of the mountain by yourself, there's nobody to turn around and give a high five to. You're just by yourself on top of a mountain. God knows what he's talking about. He said, look, stand wings to wings, man. If you win, win together. If you lose, lose together. Do it together. Whatever you do, do it together. That's how the cherubim rolled together. Then there's the mover and shaker. The mover and shaker is the person who is willing to tackle the most insurmountable challenge with no regard for the insecurities, no regard for the reluctance of other people around him. The mover and shaker just wants to tear it down and rebuild it. And these kinds of ministers, 
find it most difficult to stand wing to wing with fellow ministers. Maybe this describes you. Maybe this describes you. You have fresh ideas. You're motivated to go in your own direction. If the church doesn't want to go, you'll go by yourself. Maybe this is you. Take a moment to ponder. Maybe you often find yourself looking around and wondering why no one else seems to see what you're seeing. Why you can't seem to relate to the values and the practices of your fellow ministers. Maybe this is you. Maybe you feel like a fish out of water. Maybe you just feel like you're in the wrong body of water. Finding it difficult to follow the vision of the group to which you've been assigned. Maybe this is you. Unable to stand wings to wings. Pause right there and let me remind you. I'm not talking to the minister who thinks they have all the answers and everyone else is wrong and they're right. I'm not talking to that minister. That minister is already too far gone. I'm talking to the minister who just feels like the vision is coming to fruition too slowly. They're becoming impatient with the ministry, with the church, with themselves. They want to do something new. I'm talking to you. The person who feels like the ministry ideas are too stale and you feel like you're stagnating. I'm talking to you. My pastoral admonishment to you is to look again. <laughs> look again at the ministers who are surrounding you. Look again. Re-engage in the conversation. Look again. Revisit God's plan for his church. And when you recognize the fact that your wings are not touching anyone else's wings, you'll begin to identify the reason behind your negative sentiment. If you do not open yourself up and share your life, share your wisdom, and share your giftings, you will not benefit from the lives and wisdom and spiritual gifts of your brothers and sisters. And your misgivings will become a self-fulfilling complaint. And that disposition of isolation will plague you no matter where you go no matter what body of water you get into. <laughs> that negative disposition of isolation will plague you. Standing together in unity requires humility, patience, and self-denial. And without these, we never come to fully appreciate all that Jesus Christ has to offer to us. Because Jesus Christ reserves his greatest gifts for those ministers who work together and not the ones who stand apart. I'm a living witness to this. These angels were standing together. Their wings were touching one another. They were united. And Ezekiel says their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. I like that. I like it. Each went Straightforward. I like the way that sounds. I like the way it, this movement is described. Each went straightforward. This statement rings with a sense of resoluteness and determination that I believe should be the hallmark of every true minister of Jesus Christ. Each went straightforward. 
No turning back, no looking around, no second guessing, no slacking the reins. These cherubim are deliberate and decisive, and once they see or once they sense the path that they are called to take, they are all in, they all move straight forward. King Solomon speaks to this in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25. Listen to the advice of the wisest man to have ever lived. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the path for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. <laughs> Let me rephrase this advice from Solomon. Solomon is saying that we should watch where we're going. Consider whether we are walking in the will of God, and if so, then be resolute in our pursuit of the will of God. Be firm in our commitment. Be dedicated to the cause. Commitment and cause. Nowadays, these are two loaded terms. Commitment and cause. As we consider what it means to be committed, as we consider commitment, we'll start with this obvious reflection from Neil Strauss who says that without commitment, you cannot have depth in anything whether it's a relationship, a business, or even a hobby. Without commitment, you cannot have depth. Commitment to Jesus Christ, commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ leads to the deeper life that so many believers long for and yet so few believers attain to. And why do so few believers experience the deeper life. I would argue that the spiritual drought that besieges so many souls is due to a lack of commitment on the one hand, overcommitment on the other, and lastly, a commitment to the wrong causes. This causes many to feel spiritual drought and not to experience the deeper life. A lack of commitment, overcommitment, and commitment to the wrong causes. Let me see if I can explain this very briefly. The lack of commitment is the most apparent cause of all spiritual drought. A lukewarmness, a, a half in and half out approach to spiritual things, a lack of commitment. There are too many believers today who desire a deeper life but have no capacity for more of Jesus Christ because they're not practicing those spiritual disciplines that cultivate the deeper life they desire. They're not committed. Many believers are more committed to the experience of a deeper life than they are to Jesus Christ who gives life. <laughs> You'd be surprised to know just how many followers of Jesus have resigned themselves to the idea that they have given more than enough to the kingdom already 
they have no will to give much more. Hmm. They feel like they've tapped out, like they've already given their very best and all and their most. They feel like they've done enough. And they're unwilling to go any further down that hard road towards sanctification. In their minds, they have already arrived, or at least they have gone as far as they intend to go with Jesus, and now they just sit around and wait for the rapture. I'm tapped out. That's all. Then there are those who are overcommitted. First we have those who lack commitment, and then we have those who are overcommitted. And this is where causes come into play. There are such a plethora of causes that one can ascribe to nowadays. The cause of justice in all its forms, the cause of climate change, the cause of autonomy, the cause of sexuality, the cause of remaking the world, cultural causes, global causes, so many causes. I went to my mailbox and I got an invitation to narrate a book from a production company. And they gave me the synopsis of the book. And I found it to be very interesting. I found the author to be very persuasive, but it was just another cause. It's the new cause, uh, uh, climate justice. This is the new thing, I guess, climate justice. And I'm reading the synopsis and thinking, my God, how many causes do we have now? Everything represents another cause. Everybody wants me to give more and more and more of myself to all of these causes. Spread myself as thin as butter, trying to be Christian. <laughs> cause after cause after cause, my God. Overly committed to too many causes. And some of us, in our eagerness to make a difference in the world, find ourselves overcommitting to all sorts of causes that are loosely supported by Scripture. Things they're passionate about, things their group tells them they should be passionate about. And the more novel the idea, the more cutting edge the cause feels or seems, the more committed to it they become. Cause after cause after cause. In their earnest desire to be completely righteous and to think righteously in every one of the multitude of causes that they ascribe to leads them to committing to the wrong causes. Not that the cause itself is wrong. I think that climate justice may be a real thing. I read the book. I, I think that may be a real thing. That wonderful cause for somebody, just not for me. Just because it's a good cause doesn't mean it's a good cause for me. I've got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit to know what causes I am to be engaged in. Otherwise, there are enough causes in the world to keep me running so fast and so hard that I never read my Bible and I never pray. Committed to causes that were never mine. You've got to know the causes they're calling you to. Not that the cause itself is wrong, but that God has not assigned them to fight on that particular front, front where they've dug their foxhole. They're in the wrong foxhole, on the wrong beach, in the wrong region, fighting for the wrong cause. Hmm. 
But as we continue our review of these celestial ministers next week, we'll see that the only causes they ascribe to, the only causes the cherubim ascribe to, and the only lanes that they traverse are those assigned to them by God Almighty. Their example, as I close, their example reiterates and supports that admonishment we received from Solomon to let our eyes look straight ahead, to give careful thought to the paths of our feet. And once we find that true path and that true cause that God has assigned to us, that we will be resolute in all our ways. Unity and resoluteness. Togetherness and determination. Focus. And so my challenge question for you today is simply this. Do you know what work Jesus Christ is calling you to? Not what works. There's only one of you. There's only so much you can do. Do you know what work Jesus Christ is calling you to? It's important for you to pray about it. It's important for you to get in touch with God and to learn what his will for you is. It could be something as simple as just feeding the hungry once a month. What is the cause that God is calling you to do? When you find that cause, stand in it resolutely with determination. Invite your brothers and sisters to participate in it with you or to support you from the sidelines, but to touch wings to wings so that you can be nourished and strengthened and comforted to be able to run the race that Christ has set before you. Unity and resoluteness. These are our two examples for today and we'll continue our study next week in Ezekiel chapter one, verses five through 14. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for every minister in this room. Thank you for giving us the privilege of serving you in whatever capacity you've called us to. Whether it be great in men's eyes or small. I pray today, Father God, for our unity. I pray today, Father God, that you would bind us together with cords of love that cannot be broken, that you would cause us to stand wings to wings in support of one another, in coordination of the greater cause of the great commission of Jesus Christ. That we together as a body of ministers might proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ until you come. And that we would be both effective and efficient in our proclamation. That we would be nourished together as we stand together fitly joined as one body in full support of each of our missions and the causes to which we have been called. Endow us with the Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts even right now. Bring beauty from ashes. Give us the privilege, Lord God, of participating with you in the healing restoration of those around us who are in need in this broken world. May we shine as lights together in Jesus' name.